Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. We still don't get paid what I believe we're worth. I had secretly been wanting to try health coaching. Women have been dropping out. Your body is the next frontier of liberation. You have to monetize. We buy into this idea that anyone can do this. Your body becomes proof. Whether or not we're trying to sell a service or a product, all women are brands. Now I'm a health coach. My name is Kyla Tova, and this is Your Body, Your Brand. Episode 7, Publish or Perish. Please note this episode contains strong language, more than usual. So if you have small ears nearby, please listen with headphones or wait until you can listen alone. Or, you know, you do you. I won't tell you how to parent. Just consider my due diligence done and enjoy. Let's just pretend that money isn't part of this for a moment. And like we all are taken care of and money doesn't even exist. If I'm being really honest, I would still want to be an entrepreneur and I would still want to be really successful. And I think the piece that we're not saying, that elephant in the room, is fame, is recognition, is, is, you know, our definition. The definition of success needs to be redefined, period. But I think our traditional definition of success includes, yes, money, but if again for this for the sake of this conversation if we remove money i think success still means you know people still want a title change at work you know like they still they don't necessarily want the salary bump i'm sure that they want that too but if they can't get that they're like okay i'll take the title change i'll take more more responsibility because that that's good for our egos too just as just as much as the money and i think it's the same thing with entrepreneurship like People want the notoriety. People want the the New York Times bestseller list or the amount of followers or the Twitter blue circle check thing or, you know, whatever they're striving for. Like, I think that capitalistic striving would still be there regardless of money. This is part two of a two-part episode. You just heard Katie Dalebout, a wellness entrepreneur and author of Let It Out. In our last episode, we started to talk about the dangers of professionalizing our personal lives, and we touched on the sticky issues of presenting yourself authentically in a world that's set up to reward a very specific version of what health could look like. In this episode, we're going to continue the conversation and discuss why social capital is just as much of a trap as financial capital, especially in terms of branding the body. I asked Brooke Erin Duffy, assistant professor in the Department of Communication at Cornell University and author of the book Not Getting Paid to Do What You Love, about what she calls aspirational labor. So I use the term aspirational labor to describe the investments of of time and energy and often capital that young people make in pursuit of a career where they believe they can get paid to do what they love. Um, so aspirational labor is essentially this this future-oriented work we do that we expect will one day pay off. But in the meantime, um, it requires individuals and, and mostly the young women I was looking at to both consume and promote their branded goods among their existing um, networks of friends and, and contacts. 
Brooks work centers mainly around fashion and lifestyle bloggers, but it intersects very neatly with the world of wellness entrepreneurship. You know, we're amidst this moment where supposedly new technologies enable anyone can start their passion project and, and launch a new career and again, um, you know, become this this very celebrated self-starter careerist. And it's often attributed to digital media and, and social media sites in particular. So it's really this kind of confluence of changes in the work environment, as well as changes in the technological moment. I was really struck by um, the interviews I was doing where people were not pursuing fashion blogs just because this was kind of a, a fun hobby, but it was much more like, this is the hustle. This is the side job we need to do in order to you know get discovered or... Um, find a way to make a, a living in this very precarious career economy. And so what, what kind of stood out to me is that the investments they're required to make, both in terms of um, their time and energy, but also, as I said before, their, their capital. I mean, a lot of these careers require significant investments in one's money. Um, and so that, to me... Um, you know, really fit the framework of something that's often been discussed with magazines, which is aspirational consumption. And so to me, I saw this kind of really important historical continuity between aspirational consumption, where women in particular have historically um, been kind of encouraged by the, the wider marketplace to consume in order to sort of improve your lot in life, to what I was finding where we're encouraged to produce in order to um, find our our way in, in life. Brenda Swan, the former health coach and wedding planner, dove headfirst into this cycle of production and consumption once she began transitioning her wedding planning business into selling health coaching online. When you're in the wedding planning business, you're pretty much word of mouth. You either have crappy weddings or good weddings. And, you know, I had relied on word of mouth pretty much the entirety of my business, like all 13 years. And I feel like I never recognized how lucky I was those first few years that led me into launching my my wedding planning business. You know, I never really understood the the key clients that I had that did sort of just shout from the rooftops the old fashioned way on Yelp or whatever. And, and it kept this. I always, I mean, I was always busy all the time without having to like put ads in magazines or, you know, I did like two bridal shows and then I had to stop because I just didn't, couldn't handle the capacity of people that were waiting to have their wedding, you know? Um, so in my mind, I was just putting it out there to, via social media, like Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter, Twitter was really, really big, uh, at, uh, you know, in this realm for a really long time. Um, I'm, I'm sure it still is. And I just don't think it is because I don't really mess with it very much more. So I was only doing it that way. But I mean, I was trying hard, like I was doing all the hashtags, I was liking all those, all the, you know, all the fellow people that were speaking, highly commenting, engaging with them, and they were engaging in return and doing, again, retweets and, and likes and regrams. And um, so it was just all of that. And, and I didn't have a blog that was, you know, I had a blog that was for weddings, but I didn't want to put it in there. Because something I mean, obviously, something was doing it. But I so I relied heavily on social media, and, and getting getting the right likes engaging with the right people, you know, um, 
getting getting a, a Twitter takeover for the day or something like that uh, within massive, massive amounts of pictures. Like I was constantly taking pictures, constantly doing little videos, constantly, um, you know, tying myself in with whoever in the industry that I needed to, that I felt I needed to. Um, and I think that was the biggest way that I thought especially because that's what all of our programs that we went into said, just keep it up, keep doing what you're doing. That's exactly the only, you know, that's the one and only way that's where people were looking. Um, so I, I very heavily relied on that. And then I did do a few paid ads, not ads, but paid likes or what have you. When people go, there's no such thing. Yeah, there is. I, you know, <laughs> what the hell <laughs> I, you know, or the paid little things that just gave you a little more exposure with when you had an interaction with someone that was bigger in the, in the system of that means. And I made the t- oh, I made the point of going to, you know, different symposiums or different book signings, things of that nature with certain, with specific people so that it was easy to tag them in my photos and in my media so that, you know, er- everyone else could see like, oh, look at me. I know what I'm talking about. And I, I canoodle with the right people. As we become aspirational consumers of diet culture, we then post and produce those same aspirational signals for others. And when others pick up on those signals and we gain influence, that consumption slash production is just reinforced. And that reinforcement leads to more influence and on and on in the Ouroboros that we discussed in episode one. For Brenda, that required a focus on her actual consumption, the things she ate, the products she purchased, the pieces of her identity that could be bought— and on the way those consumables influenced how she produced her identity and body online. I spoke with Kaylin Aaron, a sales funnel coach and copy wizard, about the effects of developing our identities on public platforms through personal branding. When you're working for, like, Pepsi or whatever, yeah, you got a market. Like, that's a a large corporation. But when we're talking about, like, you and me and we're trying to sell ourselves on the Internet, is it a good thing? You know... I think it is and it isn't. Like you said, it is this sort of more complicated dynamic. There is this distance between selling yourself as a person and then selling a commercial product. And when you are on the internet, when you're selling services, you know, it is very much a matter of selling yourself because it's the same as applying for any job. If, you know, people like you and you've got 75 to 80% of the right requirements, you know, they're probably going to hire you. So there is this sort of weird dynamic wherein you need to sell yourself if you want to do this, but it also can become oppressive. And I find it becomes oppressive when we start constraining ourselves in order to sell ourselves. So it's when you're, when you put limitations on who yourself and who you are and how you present yourself, because it needs to align with your brand. You need to be on brand all the time. You know, if you're, you know, a more serious consultant, say you're like a B2B sales consultant or something, um, you know, if you're in that sort of a situation, you know, your brand's going to be more corporate and more straight laced, even if you aren't like that all the time. And then what happens is there's, oh, well, you know, I need to lock down all my personal stuff. I can't see my vacation photos. I can't really be me in the same way you would be in a job situation where you would have those personal ties with your coworkers. So it's that, that limitation I find is where it really becomes difficult because we start presenting a brand that's not, not truly who we are, um, or it's a, a sanitized version because we think that's what will be more socially acceptable. 
Even though our personal platforms have morphed from digital scrapbooks and repositories for memories, good and bad, to publishing platforms for public consumption, because they started out as personal platforms, there's a weird gray area between authentic self and, quote-unquote, authentic self for the purpose of selling. And the public-facing selves that we curate in the name of capital, both financial and social, can begin to look and feel less like our true selves and more like the aspirational and often stereotypical gender norms that will help us sell aspiration to others. Here's Brooke Aaron Duffy again. A few of my colleagues kind of do some really interesting work where they trace this whole narrative of, of being kind of a, an authentic personal brand to the early 20th century, like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, my colleague Jeff Pulley says, you know, a lot of the the narratives about, in, you know, a lot of the narratives that rouse us all to be personal brands can be found in earlier consumer culture where, you know, you sort of project to this image of genuineness and, and caring. But But what was different was that advice was really pitched to business people. And, you know, at the time, businessmen, um, the gender element there. But with the rise of social media, everyone, including my students, including myself, were all encouraged to brand ourselves and um, translate ourselves through the commodity mar- marketplace into a personal brand. But, of course, this this personal branding does not get deployed evenly. And so, you know, what we find on these social media sites is very different notions based on um, the platform, but also based on who is encouraged to be a personal brand. And so that's where I think some really um, interesting or perhaps problematic gendered elements play out where the types of personal brands women are encouraged to be tends to um, relate more to these visual elements. And so, you know, thinking about the differences on a platform like Instagram, which is incredibly visually oriented and it's increasingly saturated by um, so-called influencers, which is a, a term I don't really like, but it, it seems to be one that's, that's taken off. Um, which is a, you know, a highly gendered market. That's not to say there aren't male influencers or there's not diversity, but if you think of, um, who's really populating the aspirational Instagram economy, it tends to be young women who are, um, encouraged to present themselves in highly visible ways and in ways that conform to a lot of normative stereotypes for femininity. And in wellness, these normative stereotypes for femininity include trading the body like currency. Here's a little more of my conversation with Victoria Fariz, the former bodybuilder and Fitzbo documentarian. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is this idea that your body is your mm-hmm. social capital. Um and sometimes your social capital becomes attached to your mm-hmm. actual, like, mm-hmm. monetary capital. So, for example, when I became a uh, bodybuilder, um, part of my decision, the, the initial impetus was social capital. My boyfriend at the time told me that I wasn't worth anything unless I looked a certain way in, you know, different words. But there was that. He hinted 
at what I should look like by telling me his favorite fitness model was Jamie Eason, and he loved the way she looked. And also, have I considered deadlifting? Um, so I did. I looked up her. I looked up her workouts. I looked up her meal plans, and I followed them to a T. And by the end of the three months, when I was supposed to see him again because we were long distance at that point, uh, I didn't look like Jamie Eason. So I broke up with him <laughs> because I was afraid of him. Uh, but. What happened is after I followed a like a muscle and fitness hers challenge, that was going to be my way of of looking like Jamie. Um, people started telling me that I could really do this as a career. You know, hey, have you thought about becoming a personal trainer so that you could teach me how to look like you? Uh, have you know? And then I started really reading those magazines with um, an eye toward the people who were doing this for a living. Right. The people who were getting sponsorships, the people who had affiliate deals, the people who were being profiled, who were being flown around the country to judge competitions. And suddenly it became about the monetary uh, capabilities. Suddenly I didn't have to be a, a failing artist in New York City and I didn't have to be a retail worker in Boca Raton. I could be a world renowned bodybuilder, fitness competition person and like make my money by being sponsored by some pre-workout or a or a yeah. you know a clothing brand and i see this across it's not just bodybuilding i see this across like go on instagram if you do any kind of body sport yoga pole dance like soccer who cares whatever it is the people who are making money are the ones with affiliate deals sponsorships and tons and tons and tons of mm-hmm, followers mm-hmm. it's a lot harder to make money doing that nowadays because now everybody is you know like with social media like uh, I interviewed a, a IFBB mm-hmm. pro, um, uh, Roxy Beckles, and she talked about how when she started using social media, when social media like Instagram first came out, she was she was doing that. She was using social media to market herself and her services, her personal training and stuff. Um, but now everybody's doing it. So, you know, it's not that rare. And now, mm-hmm. you know, awareness um, – a knowledge of how to get this quote unquote perfect body is, is so much more out there than it used to be. Um, so, you know, in some ways it's much easier to become that person. So um, really the gains mm-hmm. of, of being sponsored are, it's all an illusion because these people, most, a lot of these people really aren't making any money. You do have your rare exceptions, like your page Hathaway's or, I mean, I don't know how much money she's making, but I mean, she's, she's sponsored by a pretty big, mm-hmm. um, by a pretty big, uh, supplement company, but other people, you know, like your, you know, Joe's and Jane's who just have a six pack and are, and are getting sponsored by, you know, supplement brand number 1057. Um, they're not making any money off of it because there's no money to be made. It takes, it takes a lot to make money off of that. And many times what they're only getting paid in supplements and these supplements are garbage. I mean, a lot of mm-hmm. there's there's no regulation for for what goes into the supplements. So it's really I think a lot of it is an illusion to like pretend that you um, that you are someone to pretend that you're insta like you're an insta famous you know uh, 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 fitness person. Um, when I was training for my bodybuilding competition, my my coach, my team, they would hold these seminars where you know we would talk about making making a living out of your body, pretty much, and um, you know, learning to use social media to brand yourself and, you know, um, some also like multi-level marketing stuff, but, um, you know, how to, how to get picked up by fitness magazines, you know, that you had to, uh, uh, hire your own photographers and, and that now, and, you know, 
you, you, you have to build your own. Cause my coach, she had done that to herself. She, she kind of built her own platform by hiring photographers. If, if nobody was getting her, um, to, to, um, and nobody was taking her, her picture, any magazine was taking her picture. She would hire the photographers and take her own pictures to make herself relevant and to have these cool pictures. Cause you know, Instagram's very, um, I mean, it's all images. So duh, of course it's going to be very image oriented. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is kind of like what we were told. Um, and then of course, after your, your competition, you go and you take your, you, you go and take your professional pictures right after competition to, to, or around competition time. Cause that's when you're looking your best. So, you know, you want those as proof to get clients. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different tactics that are, um, in which you can make money off of your body in which people feel that this is going to save them. For wellness entrepreneurs, the idea of building your own platform is in some ways the draw. Becoming the CEO of your own business is as simple as finding that platform and then taking the very public risk of stepping up onto it. But Kaylin Aaron warns us what happens when the market asks us to view that platform as a pedestal. So many coaches, the way we're taught to sell is not um, is really not conducive to what they want to do because you're taught to sell by setting yourself up as an authority. And there's this superiority complex that goes along with it essentially you're on this pedestal and we we create brands like we were talking about earlier our brands reinforce that pedestal so it's not you know you so it's essentially you're standing above your customer and you're looking down on them metaphorically and saying hey you know i can bring you up to this level or you know you're pulling them up instead of standing side by side with them um one of the reasons I've built my sales funnel model the way I have and the reason it's been successful is because I actually started out selling luggage and I was in this really narrow little mom and pop store in a mall and we didn't actually have room on the floor to display all of our suitcases. So we had we had these cubbies built into the back wall where we would, you know, put our suitcases side by side. And there was it was so narrow I actually had to stand shoulder to shoulder with my customers. I couldn't like look them in the eye and as they were saying, okay, well, you know, we, we travel this many times a year, we do this sort of travel. I'm looking at this wall in front of me and picking out suitcases that will suit their needs. And it's a very different energetic feel to the way a lot of us are taught to sell where it is, oh, well, I'm above you, right? I'm, I'm the one who knows better. I have all this knowledge. Let me, let me bring you up to my level. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting about that, too, is that on the internet, you don't even actually have to be good at anything to be considered an expert. Like, as long as you know how to set up a brand, right? So as long as you know how to pick the right colors, to put the calls to action, and to share your story, you could be at any point in your journey, and you can set yourself up as an authority as long as people, as long as your words convince people that you are slightly ahead of where they are. And I will say, you know, full disclosure, I was still in recovery when I became a health coach because I was still I, I was still very, very obsessed with optimizing my body. My most popular blog posts on my website right now, the ones that continue to generate the most traffic to my website, and I've only left them up because I want to be transparent about my journey, um, are the ones about like how I was trying to supplement my amenorrhea away instead of eating more food. <laughs> right. Um, so, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's interesting. I, it also frustrates me because I look at a lot of the health bloggers 
who we we come to know, like, and trust because they're they exercise a lot and they post pictures of their food, right? Um, often they are very very sick <laughs> and very disordered. Um, but we cast them as authority because they have presented themselves as standing on this pedestal. There's a very popular health blogger who I had become friends with and was very concerned about. She is severely anorexic, and people continue to to click on her recipes, which funds the advertisers and the affiliate deals, and has convinced her in a lot of ways, her audience has kind of marketed to her that she is the expert, and therefore she refuses to accept help um, and won't go to treatment because she can't be that sick if people believe that she's an expert. Right? Yeah. Uh, to, yeah, and just going back to image for a second, I, I love that you're bringing this up because, you know, she has convinced her, she's convinced this group of people that she's an expert. And by fitting the physical ideal of an expert – and then they respond to that and reinforce it for her, which is, creates this negative feedback loop, which is, you know, absolutely what what happens when you can market well and you sort of play this, um, play this almost like among you know newer business owners and entrepreneurs and coaches, you'll see a lot of talk about imposter syndrome, and I think a lot of this happens because, well, like because you know, the advice they're given right off the bat is set yourself as, up as an expert when they already know they're not yet experts. They, they know they're beginners, but they haven't thoughts to help someone. So they can theoretically get this thing started, but there's, you know, they've got imposter syndrome partly because they're, they're playing this role that they don't yet feel like they actually inhabit. And that feeds into this entire cycle. Mm-hmm. And what happens then, you're right, it's, it's totally a negative feedback loop. And this happens in every single niche where I think we're at this point, we've hit this inflection point with the internet where the people creating content, which is a word that I despise, um, because as a writer, I do not create content, I create writing, <laughs> you know, um, content is just filler. Um, but the the content creators of the world, which is, you know, it's that's my B2B title, I'm a content producer. Um, we feel like we're actually at the mercy of people's psychology instead of in control of people's psychology, which is not the truth. Um, but so we've created a negative feedback loop where we say, oh, well, people don't click if I write it like this, so I have to give them this because that's all they'll do. And so then people continue to click on it because that is what triggers their psychology, right? And then it's like, see, I couldn't do anything about it. I got, you know, I have to continue to pander to people's psychology. So it's the same thing that happens in the body image world where it's like, well, I know I could write this radical thing, but if I do, then, you know, people aren't going to come to my website anymore. People aren't, I I'm at their mercy. It's not, it's not me. It's their fault that I can't give them more. Yeah. You see a lot of copywriters and like, you know, people in, in my sphere who, you know, we're constantly looking at marketing psychology and behavior and searching for feedback because you're right. It's like, what will they click on? Um, and, you know, and in the case of your B2B example, it's like, well, you know what, if I don't get those clicks, I may lose my job. In the case of, you know, the, the healthcare industry for the coaches, it's like, well, if I don't get those clicks, you know, I lose my status as an expert, I lose my income, I lose everything. So it is, it's very much tied into capitalism, because it's a matter of we need to monetize it. When you set yourself up as an authority, you have to project success in order to get people to trust you. 
But there's no guarantee that becoming a health entrepreneur is going to pay off. In fact, it's a lot harder to make it work these days than online marketing coaches would have you think. To give you an example, I asked Brenda about what happened when she bought into her own brand as a health entrepreneur. So you you are posting all these pictures and these videos, and you're trying to show yourself being the person that you want to sell. Yes. Right? What does yes. that do for you emotionally, mentally? Like, what's what's going through your head at this point? Holy mother of God. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, the first thing that was sort of something I hadn't, I didn't know how to deal with was that, you know, fast food incident. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you eat this? Because I had built my brand. Brenda Swan is, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, award-winning wedding planner. And now I'm a health coach. Mm-hmm. Um, holistic, by the way, holistic health coach, because I'm not selling you anything. I'm just selling you my services. I'm selling you the ability to come talk to me. And mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you how to lead your life perfectly from beginning to end. You know, beginning at the wedding, by the way, not beginning right. ever before that, because you didn't exist before that. Right. Um, well you know um Mm -hmm. we laugh but that sadly is exactly what's communicated out there to most people Um, yeah anyway right back to how did that affect me so that was huge that was huge because then that affected something I was starting to take for granted like now my husband could not be seen with me out eating so he would be the one that if I felt lazy I didn't I forgot to meal prep you know whatever I would send him off to go get the food and I wouldn't go with him you know, it's like, no, no, you need to go get the food. You need to go get whatever. You know, I don't want anyone, you know, I don't want anyone to see me out and about and like, you know, or we would have to drive like an hour away because I was only going to go out to eat an hour away where I could potentially not know anybody. And I had the least amount of clients, so I didn't have to totally dress up, but I still have to dress up. Mm-hmm. So it became like this extra burden of who I had to be and how I had to be. And um, then there was another, another event Um, It was a charity event at my CrossFit gym, as a matter of fact. Mm. Uh, It was a charity event where, you know, we work out hard and then we party hard because, you know, that's what you do. You work work hard, party hard thing. Right. Um, And at that event, I happened to let myself invite in some alcohol. And Mm -hmm. and another one of my fellow athletes that was also happened to be a client because I somehow managed to get them to come to my gym. (laughs) <laughs> and get and get extra money because when I brought him to my gym, then my gym was like all excited. And then here you go. You get either money off of your thing or you get a cut of their contract, you know, whatever. Sure. Um, and then I happened to get myself, you know, let myself be a little tipsy. And then they looked at me like, I've never seen you like this before. This is so funny. I'm going to take a picture. Oh, no. To which I suddenly sobered up and flipped my lid. Like, you are not allowed to take my picture. This is a sacred space, blah, 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 blah. And then I, start, I just went on this, like, bitch fest of how dare you. Because mm-hmm. what's, what was it? And I didn't recognize it at that moment. Or I probably didn't even recognize it for months. That what I, it was fear. Fear that you're going to break my pretty perfect picture of my brand and of who I am. And mm-hmm. people are not going to, you know, think that I'm legitimate. And that I, I you know, that I actually know what I'm talking about. Because now here I am you know, not drunk off my ass, but drunk enough to where you think it's funny and you want to take a picture and I don't look like myself. And it's like, and then you're going to go put it on social media. Cause you know, aha, look, it's funny. Brenda, you know, Brenda's drunk and uh, this right. thing. And, and I, I mean, I remember being angry. I remember being upset. Like it hunted me for weeks. I 
avoided their calls, even though they were my freaking client. I had my staff deal with them, you know, because mm-hmm. I was like, nope, nope, they're so rude. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't even let me see. if it, it, And then I got obsessed with hunting down their social media to make sure this picture didn't get posted anywhere because I couldn't remember whether they actually deleted it or not. And then I got paranoid over that mm. maybe they deleted it, but it's still in their deleted folder on their iPhone where they still have to double delete it. So it's gone forever. Right. Uh, you know, and you don't realize when it's happening, like the fear, the anger, the anxiety, um, you know, again, with with my husband having to go out and buy food for us when we wanted to have a date night and not cook. Or here's the here's another kicker. Sometimes when I would meal prep and my meal prep wasn't perfect because I would always post my meal prep food every Sunday. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't perfect, I would style my food the little bit that I did get a chance to meal prep because God forbid I had things to do, weddings to run, you know, whatever. Right. I would style my meal prep and and like do just like women take, you know, angled pictures for their better sides. I would mm-hmm. do the same thing with the minimal amount of food for my fridge. So I still had a post to, to put up with my fit fam meal prep for the win, you know, healthy eating, clean eating ready for wow. ready for anything and and again at that point you don't notice sort of this facade that you're creating and how on how hard it is to keep up with that does that mm-hmm. make sense absolutely makes sense oh my god it was i i thinking about it right now is kind of making me a little teary eyed because i didn't see it at the at the time i didn't at all yeah. i did and if you would have said to me you're you're a little obsessed you're a little crazy i would have been like you're stupid you don't understand me Right. You're obviously a fat, lazy cow, and you don't right. care about your health, and you're going to die of cancer, just FYI. Like, <laughs> that is, like, the meanest, worst thing ever. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's a monster. How could anybody want to hire me? <laughs> like, yeah. I, well, that laughing, is the... This is a shameful laugh right yeah. now. No, but it's it's... It's so real, though, Brenda. That's the thing. It's so real. And it's like I was that monster at some point, too. And I see these monsters still existing on social media and teaching other people how to become that monster and how to embrace it and love it and believe in it to the point where it is so. How to make $10,000 a month. Yeah. Teaching other people how to do it. Right. Well, but that's the thing. And that's the thing that that worries me is that so it wasn't just about not getting cancer and it wasn't just about fat phobia. Right. There's another part of it, which is I can't make money if people see me gain weight. Mm -hmm. I can't make money if people see me eat a roast beef sandwich. Right. Right. And it's the money thing. It's the like I, I, I harp on this and I think a lot of people think I'm crazy, but it is capitalism that is a huge part of the problem because yes. the health coaches that we see being thin and healthy, quote unquote, right? Because we don't know if they're actually healthy. Right. Um, yeah, we are. But, Be quiet. You don't know. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But these people who are enacting the behaviors that are being rewarded are being rewarded. They're living on their own terms. They're not having to work a day job. They get to create online products and pay their VA in the Philippines to make something for them. And then they can make tons and tons and tons of money and frolic all day and take these great pictures. Yes. And I want that too. You want that too. Their audiences want that too. Mm -hmm. And so people and i i see this happening across all aspects of body image right it's not totally. just it's not just paleo it's not just vegan like i even see no. this in the body positive space right? right 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 it's like people start copycatting 
in order to sell to their own audience so they can make money. It's right. not just about the health. We say it's just about the health. It's not just about the health. If it were just about the health, then we probably wouldn't need to be quite so restrictive. Right. Or we wouldn't need to perform it so much. Right? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's the performative authenticity. This this perfectly styled meal prep because you did authentically mm-hmm. prep your meals mm-hmm. right you just but they then... weren't perfect enough they weren't per- as good as my right. ones from the prior weeks they weren't no and they're and by the way it was only quick and i was not going to tell people that i was super exhausted super tired barely got a chance to go to the farmer's market because i had to work a wedding the night before to like midnight mm-hmm. you know where i had to deal with things it, i have a life I have a life and I'm a human being and (laughs) I know weird, right. And a job and, but no, God forbid, God forbid that Brenda stepped out without mascara or didn't have the freaking most perfect, delicious looking meal prep ever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a terrifying way to live and it's, it scares me because it's becoming normalized. You know, dear, it's only terrifying way to live if you don't know how to do it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is true. That was facetious in case it did not the tone did not carry <laughs> For Brenda, living her brand, quote unquote, authentically actually meant changing her life to better match her marketing. This is not uncommon, and yet so many coaches still strive to show themselves as quote unquote authentically as they can online. In my conversation with Kaylin, we discussed how difficult it is to pin down what makes marketing authentic. I've found that so many coaches online are authentic, look at my mess, um, specifically in, in ways to leverage people's desire, right? Like, here's a picture of me and my cellulite. Give me a yes queen, please. You know, here's a picture of my body rolls. I'm doing this because other coaches are doing that and getting more likes, you know, and it's see, I'm not perfect. See, I'm just like you. See, I'm still an expert, but we can also stand shoulder to shoulder, wink, wink. And the problem is, it's not that that isn't authentic. And it's not that that can't be good. It's just that you have brandified your imperfections, right? Or your or your perfections, because those could just be your perfections, right? That could just be you, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a performative type of authenticity. And that's when it stops being authentic. Authenticity is one of those things I find it's very hard to perform it in groups. It, it can and absolutely does come across as, you know, being played up, especially when it is it is marketing, because it's that one directional it's coming from me to you there's no feedback there's no reciprocity with it um if you look at it the difference between like like you mentioned instagram photos or something like that versus somebody actually being in a room with you and you're seeing them on the couch with their cellulite and their body rolls eating a cupcake you know the context is inherently what makes it performative right because when you actually have that in-person moment that's when it changes you get people who are you know, gregarious and outgoing and, you know, you know, have these verbal slip ups or make some sort of mistake. If they're in, you know, if they're filming this for their Facebook live, you know, it can feel put upon versus if they're doing it in a room where they're networking and all of a sudden it's just like, oops, yeah, that's me. That's what you get. And yeah. And it's a matter of, I find, I find it's almost like a chicken and the egg question. If 
does the authenticity come first or does the brand? If the brand comes first, that's when the authenticity feels performative. Being authentic means not flaunting your authenticity, or at least not leaning on it in a highly performative way in your marketing rhetoric. It's a thing you show, not tell. But isn't showing yourself, you know, selecting or curating a version of yourself that you want to show the world when you create a brand image, isn't that still performative when you put it out there online? And what happens when you change, or your business changes, or the culture changes? What happens when your core audience gets bored, or or you get bored? If you are your brand, how do you separate yourself from your income? I talked about this with Pace Smith, the pathfinding coach whom we met in the last episode. The question to ask yourself is like, why do you give a shit about being authentic? And don't just say because being authentic is good or because honesty is good or whatever. Bullshit. Like there's something else going on. And and like and I, I think a lot of it is the same thing that I mentioned earlier about your your passion can be a downside instead of a plus, because it forces you to do everything in the perfect way that matters the most and is getting 100% of what you care about. You know, like, I, I, I do not say the following thing often, but take a page from Big Business. <laughs> like, you know, when you want to buy a, like, a pen, you don't care who made the pen. You just care that it works. And so, like, yes, sure, I understand that having a personal brand is very convenient because then it means that you get to, like, you already have a brand. It's kind of sort of you. But it's also dangerous, like we've been talking about. And so you've got to have that distinction between who you are and what your business is. Is the pen authentic? Is a ballpoint pen authentic? Who gives a flying fuck? Does it work? Does it help people? That's the question you need to be asking. And like, yes, lying is harmful. That's bad. Um, but, you know, uh, that's, but that's not what real people are really talking about when they're talking about being authentic. It's usually like, am I showing all of who I truly am? Well, if I am over here suffering and you have something that can help me, I don't give a shit about who you truly are. Just help me, please. Don't make promises you can't keep. That's authentic for me. But think back to episode three when Daniel Pink talked about the concept of seller beware. You can't just sell a product anymore. I mean, anyone can get a product or service or even information anywhere. People want to know what your brand stands for, what you stand for. And the more obviously you buy into your own brand, the more easily others can find you and buy in too. So... Back when I was paleo, because I was also paleo, um, after I was vegan, I had to find the next magic cure. Um, And, you know, in the paleo world, like you can define who every single person is by Mm -hmm. how they eat. Right. So like there's like, oh, there's the keto guy. And oh, there's the this person. Oh, there's the that. Like, you you know who that person is based Uh on their brand. And what was interesting is as I stayed in that community over time, um, especially those who got um, successful on their brand, there were kind of like two different people. There were the people who became, oh, I'm the keto guy, <laughs> right? Who's like, who you didn't have to say their name and you just knew like, I'm the grass fed uh-huh. girl or whatever. And then there were the people who just transitioned their websites to yes. their names. 
you know. And it's interesting because I think in both cases, um, it becomes yep. a huge trap. Yep. Because there were the people who, like, they became so their brands that you literally can't say anything else except keto yeah. if you're the keto guy, right? Like, you literally can you have to go deeper and further because your audience gets bored over time if you keep talking about the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, because with coaching and things like that, we don't want our audiences to go away because then we stop making money. So we have to keep going further and deeper and and getting crazier. But then there's the people who become their their first and last name dot com. And it just becomes um, like they just are a business. Yeah. At that point, like they 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 lose their sense of identity, like find them to buy their stuff. <laughs> if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. They're both they're they're both easy traps to fall into. Yeah. And it's just like, whew, I don't know. It's 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 frustrating because, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to better articulate to people like that they just need to step back that you're not a business you know you are not a business yourself is not a business you can't be a business because if you change your business fails like that is yeah and for like and like sure maybe that can work for some people but Mm -hmm. for us Mm -hmm. by which i mean like you and me and like you who's listening to this Mm -hmm. like we are like we're gonna change if you're into (laughs) if you're into any kind of self-work or personal growth or even like intro fucking inspection you're (laughs) going to change and so like if you create a business plan Mm -hmm. that secretly relies on you not changing your business plan is going to fail yes yes Oh my God, I love it. And then, so, so the, on the other end of that, there are the people who buck change um, to the point where it becomes damaging. So, you know, uh, when I was recovering from my eating disorder, um, part of my whole thing was like, I'm going to be the paleo recovery coach, right? I'm going to, but what happens is, you know, when paleo stops quote unquote working, right? Because in my brain at that point, it was still very disordered. I still hadn't really understood health at every size, et cetera. So it was like, oh, well, I'm not as thin as I should be. I'm So therefore I'm not as healthy as I should be. I guess I'm going to have to go further. I guess I'm going to have to go deeper. I guess I'm going to have to go harder. And so I was going to, I was getting more and more restricted in the ways in which I ate because I had to prove well, I'm paleo first. Right. My identity is this thing that cannot change. And even as even as my I started learning about health at every size, I like intersectional feminism slapped me in the face and I'm sitting here going, (laughs) but I can't eat bread, you know, and it was like, why am I doing this? I'm going to lose everything. And there was there was an inflection point where it was like, I can change or I won't, you know, and that is um, that is concerning you know because i i I remember speaking to a woman who is actually an anorexic and her blog is all about healthy living and she refuses to stop it because she's quote unquote helping so many people while she is dying like Mm -hmm. literally dying and she will not go into treatment she will not take down her blog she will not help herself but she is running another marathon to prove to her followers that she is healthy and that is just a really clear extreme version of what so many of us are doing to ourselves in a more subtle way mm-hmm. when when we identify with our businesses. Mm-hmm. We are we're killing ourselves more slowly, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. no less lethally. Brenda's brand was lethal 
in the metaphorical sense, in that it very quickly poisoned one of the most important relationships in her life. My obsession with being perfect and trying to solve everybody's problems and everything always being picture perfect and whatever, that killed my relationship with my husband. Mm. It drove him literally out the door with how actually he wasn't even secondary in my life at that point. I think he was like sixth or seventh down my hashtag, you know, quota that I had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really, really, I have been with you this entire time building both businesses, you know, and yeah. this is, this is what our life is like. I, what? And I mean, there was so much more. I mean, literally ne- neglect, you know, and I hate admitting this and I hate talking about it. And I probably haven't really talked to anybody past, like maybe my mom and my therapist and maybe like a bestie or two that, you know, watched yeah. me break down when he just said, all right, really? That's what you're choosing? I'm out, you yeah. know? And he went out the door and he went out the door and I was like, yeah, whatever. He'll come back later. And he didn't come back. He oh, did wow. not come back later. and. I had to choose between continuing to build this facade of a business mm-hmm. um, and, or I had to choose, I have to save the relationship I have with my husband, the man that I married, the man that has always been there for me. He literally just disappeared. And, and it was a good year to a year and a half where I was like, okay, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I, there has got to be a better way to make money. There has got to be a better way to be me. And, and spread a message and, oh my God, how is everybody else good at this and I'm not? Here's the thing. Everybody else is not good at this. Brooke Aaron Duffy explains. That's like the, the million dollar question, what does it take to succeed? And you're absolutely right that in a lot of cases, um, it's someone who started early. And of course, there's people who... Um, who have been successful through luck. I mean, that's the way this, this whole system works. Like if absolutely nobody made it, um, you know, the, the structure would kind of implode, but for the most part, um, the people who quote unquote made it, um, had a combination of existing privilege in various ways. And, um, kept at it for, you know, not just weeks, but, but months and, and years. And so, um, you know, I think there's this narrative that we see all the time in popular culture where, oh, I started this, um, YouTube channel, or I started this Instagram account and, um, you know, I got discovered and all of a sudden I had, um, hundreds of thousands of followers and, it's a very seductive narrative, of course, but but the reality is from the, the people I spoke with is, no, I, I had a job in a different industry and I was sort of moonlighting as um, a content creator for years before I was able to um, go out on my own or, um, you know, I had family support who were able to um, enable me to participate in this hobby for years or well even though I positioned myself as an amateur I actually like worked in the media industries for a decade and had um I was gonna say a Rolodex but nobody has Rolodex anymore but had a whole network of of contacts 
where I could kind of use my um, existing pool of networks to to make this. And so I think the the myth of um, being a social media entrepreneur or digital entrepreneur is quite different than the reality for for most people. Um, and I was really struck by, I guess, the less glamorous aspects of this. Um, and so, you know, again, being an entrepreneur is very sexy and, and seductive. But, um, you know, besides the fact that it's very precarious and, and unstable, it was a lot of people who said they're spending like days and nights on email and, and on the phone and, um, you know, doing the, the types of work that a lot of us do and don't see as, as glamorous at all. Um, and again, the, the promotional element. And I think a lot of people were, were deeply ambivalent about this pressure to engage in self-marketing all the time. Um, one of my favorite quotes was from a content creator who said that, you know, when she she described herself as a full-time freelancer because um, she had the blog and she was doing a TV channel um, and a radio show. And so sort of Jacks and Jills of all trades. But she said, in order to be successful in this field, you don't have to be the best. She said, you have to be good enough and well-marketed. And I think that was so telling because a lot of people um, pursue creative careers because they think they're going to be communicating with audiences and, and sharing their, their stories and actually, um, you know, engaging in the sort of creative or, or artistry. But what they're often doing is promoting themselves. And a lot of people don't enjoy that. So I think it's sort of one of these concealed elements of the job that deserves further attention. Oh, for sure. Um, although <laughs> on top of that, you know, the, with the industry of marketers marketing to marketers who glamorize, uh, the, the act of being busy all the time, um, it, you know, it's once you get into it, uh, you start to delude yourself because I feel like what happens, and this is uh, speaking from personal experience, is you, you develop these parasocial relationships with the, um, the influencer, the, the people that you feel like you know because they're sharing their quote unquote authentic lives online. And, you know, it looks, you know, carefree and sexy and wonderful and everybody's free to do yoga all day. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and then you start to build your own business and you realize that it is a business and you start to question, okay, well, do I really want to be on social media 24-7 scheduling my posts through Buffer or Hootsuite or whatever? And so then you find the marketers marketing to marketers who themselves are so gung-ho about every single new project. Here's how you get to inbox zero was literally posts I would read and feel, you know, thrilled about. Um, and so then there's this glamorization of the hustle in and of itself. So after you've made the investment of yourself in somebody else's business and then you start to see yourself in that position, um, you then start to invest in the work that it takes. And once you're so deep in because you've spent tens of thousands of dollars and hours and hours and hours, you feel like you can't even leave. Because at this point, if you did, it would all be sunk cost and quote unquote for nothing, right? 
And, and it's very difficult, I've noticed, to separate yourself from an identity that you have invested money in, you know, and shown other people that you've invested money in, let me be clear. Um, <laughs> because, because there is this idea that if you do the work, you should be rewarded for it. And so if you didn't do the work correctly, then the reason you're not getting rewarded is because you just weren't good enough. You didn't work hard enough. And that in at least in American culture is, you know, the number one sin. No, you're you're so right. I mean, you know, this. Um, you know, to to give up on. On your personal entrepreneur, your venture um, is no longer just giving up on your profession. It's, it's giving up on your personal because we're at this moment when the personal and professional are so deeply hitched to one another. Um, and so I think that's when it becomes really, really difficult because, um, you know, the, the larger, um, issue that a lot of us, myself included, are, are facing in this, social media moment is um, we are encouraged to always be out there, always be um, showcasing our lives on social media. And so it becomes idealized to have this um, personal professional melding. But, but what that eclipses is the fact that, you know, there's, there's no time off. Um, we can't take a break from this because um, you know, you, you take a break and there's the risk of losing audiences and, and clients or and advertisers. And so, you know, what, what that amounts to is everyone is just hustling all the time. If you recall Katie Delbout from our last episode, she mentioned that she didn't like talking about having a full-time job because it made her worry that her audience wouldn't see her as a successful influencer. She, a person who was earning a, a full-time income, felt shame about admitting it and fear that her podcast advertisers would drop out if they thought she wasn't the complete hashtag boss babe of her own self-made company. Shame, the equal and opposite reaction to empowerment in a neoliberal framework, drives so many of us to continue to invest in our self-brands long after they become detrimental to our health, wealth, and happiness. We begin to feel that we must publish or perish— even if the publishing itself is what's hastening our financial or emotional demise. Here's more of my conversation with Pace Smith. You know, when we talk about brand, when we talk about identity tied to brand, like, oh, well, I am selling body image, so I have to act out body image on the internet all the time, right? I'm selling weight loss. I have to act out weight loss on the internet all the time. I'm selling essential oils. I have to act out essential oil loving on the internet all the time. And in my case, I'm selling follow your heart. And so I have to yeah. act out follow my heart on the internet all the time. Exactly. Even though that seems like freedom, it's a cage where the bars are labeled freedom. Yes, exactly. Anytime, anything that you are selling on the internet when it is yourself, Right. Anything that you're selling anywhere, but on the Internet, it's just easier to uh, turn it into a product. Right. Because you can share the images of it. You can stage it. You can write it. You can do whatever it is you need to do. But anytime you yourself are the product or you yourself model the product, um, it becomes it becomes a, a, a prison because you are asking for capital in return. 
capital being uh, social capital, people liking you, loving you, uh, following you, whatever, or monetary capital, financial capital, which is when they pay for your product or service, right? Or they pay to sponsor you to continue doing that thing. And what happens is if, if at any point you change, you risk losing all your capital, right? Yes. Right? And so that is, that is the prison. So yes. even if it's something that you love, if you change, it will ruin you. Like when I was a vegan, oh my goodness. So, you know, this is not an argument about whether veganism is good or bad, but for me personally, it was killing me. And when I changed, I was scared to death because I had modeled veganism for a year. Yep. Right. And it was like, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's easy to turn that into internal shame. Yes. Because it's like, it's not because it, once you practice like, oh, being this is really important. What you, what you're teaching yourself mm -hmm. is that I've got to be this. It's not like we're having these rational conscious arguments about like, hmm, well, perhaps if I choose <laughs> to do something different, I might lose social or financial capital. Right, right. No, it's way <laughs> internalized and it feels like shame. When it was all said and done, not because it's all said and done, but when I had to like make the hard shift, because at that, you know, you, you, a lot of the stuff in this realm came slowly. You know what I mean? It came very, very slowly. Um, you know, even the, the postings, the hashtags, the, the friends, the events, the, all these things, like they all kind of creep up on you slowly and you have to keep doing it. You have to keep doing it. And again, you get the positive reinforcements. You keep doing it. Um, mm -hmm. This didn't come that way because I never saw it, of course, from his perspective or anyone's perspective other than my own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that seems so brash. And then I had to figure out really fast in those documents I put together of how I was going to run my healthy business and how I'm going to take clients at this time and this time and wedding clients here. And, you know, I had to figure out how he was going to fit back into it because what did I want more? Did I want all this fame and fortune and money or did I want? my life with that I had built with my husband with the person that I am to share the rest of my life with you know the person that I promised I would share the rest of my life with it takes effort not just you're going to hang out because there's we have this governmental contract thing you know <laughs> right but like right. I, yeah so god even that's a little crazy to to talk about and and I had to I had to almost like cold turkey just be like nope I'm out like I'm out mm -hmm. And then the harder part of that is that not only am I grieving, trying to prove to my, you know, the love of my life that he is the love of my life and to say that things are going to change and then it's, you know, I can do different, I can do better and I'm so sorry. I never meant to neglect you and treat you that way and make you the butt of my jokes because he was constantly the butt of my jokes because he isn't into anything that I was into, you know. And in fact, people that knew us on a personal level and saw my, me, like my, my facade of a life on so on the social media channels were like how the hell do you do that because Dayton doesn't like working out he loves right. pizza he likes ice cream he's a normal like he's literally a normal person and I would like just ridicule him and like he would be the butt of the jokes all the time and he just dealt with it and he'd put up with it and I'm like yeah whatever he's this you know he's a scrawny kid from the south and he's always going to be scrawny he's just lucky that with genetics and you know scrawny became skinny and skinny's cute and like yeah he you know he doesn't have to worry about because he's skinny um, mm -hmm. 
and he's always going to be skinny, you know, and then whatever, but then he's going to die of a heart attack at 52 and that's fine. Cause you know, I'll get his insurance money. Um, oh, I, right. Right. Isn't that awful? Isn't yeah. that awful? Don't you want to hit me across the phone right now? No, because I know, you know, I mean, when I was, uh, really, really deep into my bodybuilding stuff, I was like, I would never date anybody who can't eat like me, who doesn't think like me, who doesn't exercise like me. That's disgusting. Why would I do yeah. that? There, right. he's, you know, he would die, and uh, I don't want to be responsible for that because unless right. I can convince, you know, my partner to change, then I can't do this. Like my whole existence is built around proselytizing other people, yes. to change. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't want to have to work after work. So you should just get with the program. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. And as a and as much of an asshole as I was to him, guess who was still waking up at four thirty in the morning to to drive me to my to my race day, you know, location because I yeah I was also running marathons and all this stuff, you know. And I had this like one year I had this. In fact, that that year before he just was like, okay, that's I've had enough. I was mm-hmm. running a half marathon every single month because you know that's what strong properly fed perfect health humans do you know we run half marathons every month um and and, you know he would still get up he'd get all my crap he'd carry my gear he'd pick me up ready with food the proper food mind you in the proper containers not in plastic in glass with you know my supplements and da 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 and he'd be there to pick me up and oh and to take my pictures because I needed the perfect pictures to post to go with all of it because you know I didn't just do this for fun right my brand you know, right. and it's like, oh, take another picture. That wasn't good enough. Oh, Jesus. You know? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, oh, my God. What kind of a freaking monster am I? And what has <laughs> happened? And how much value am I actually getting out of this? So, you know, you sit down and I bitched about it before and I bitch about it all the time telling people, okay, sit down and actually figure out your hard cash. How much money are you actually making and what sacrifices are, you know, your time, how much of your time are you putting into it? Are you make? are you really making $30 an hour or are you making 30 cents a fucking hour? Um, right. And then when I sat down and like literally had to do that for myself and then halfway through as I'm like realizing that I'm not making any money, that it's, you know, I'm, I'm feeding this other business with my first business, the wedding planning and everything and it's just like oh my god and I I just I remember like just starting to cry and losing it and I'm like I have got to figure out how to make this business plan be my husband coming back to home coming home not not any of this and I just dropped it I just dropped it and said screw it like it's it's not worth it and and I went and got myself a proper job Mm -hmm. quote unquote you know by by traditional capitalist standards I think yeah. Um, because I think to an extent, a lot of the greater piece of the world that isn't our own realm is still looking at us in this fitness world. I shouldn't say, say us. I'm sorry that I'm including you in that. No, um, it's fine. Still looks at us like, okay, this isn't a real career. This isn't a real thing. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not something with longevity, like a human resources manager. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and so, yeah, I went and got myself a proper job and started to have a proper savings and proper, you know, doing everything the the traditional adult way so that I could prove to my husband, like, OK, look, I'm, I'm done fucking around and I'm not going to do this anymore. And and even and it, and it burned to say stuff like that, too, because it's like, no, that was serious and it was a serious thing and you just don't get me. But but that's fine. I, I don't care that you don't get me. I care more that. I, with my relationship with you, you know, but I, so I was still even carrying some of that weird 
things around with me, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and then, um, I mean, I don't know. And it was just so shameful in, in so many respects, you know, and, and it was, it was hard. It was tough. And it was like, okay, well, how do I, how do I continue to show, like, how, how, how do I do any of this? How do I do life? (laughs) How do I do life? How do I get back to wherever I was before I went down this path that I didn't realize was a a shit show? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't even know where to go back to exactly even because I was so deep in. Um, and at that point I wanted to just make money to show him that what everything I did was value, you know, was valuable mm-hmm. just so that I could bring him home again, blaming the money, not blaming myself or my behavior or my actions right. or any of that, you know? And so, yeah, like I said, I got myself, a. I was still running my business and the nice thing about my business, my business pretty much ran itself at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but I had fleeced my, my own profit so much trying to build this other thing mm-hmm. that I barely had enough money to keep my staff employed and proper without cutting their hours and without them having to like know what was going all up in my business. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, because then when any, when all this happened, by the way, no one could know. Cause you know, I'm perfect. Right. No one could know. Right. No one, no one likes the wedding planner with marital problems. No one likes the, no one likes the, the wedding planner with marital problems eating ice cream when she's also right. a health coach, right. you know, at night. And, but everyone did like was the, the wedding planner who was also a health coach who had marital problems, therefore not eating a thing. And all of a sudden dropped 30, 40 pounds in a matter of months and looked better than ever. Right. How are you doing it? How mm-hmm. are you so amazing? So here's half of me trying to save my marriage. Here's the other half of me making up stories about why I can't save my marriage. Here's the other half of me trying to still being a, like lured in, back in because mm-hmm. all of a sudden I was relevant again because, oh, look at how thin and beautiful and pretty I am. Look at my progressive shots of photos here. And um, I remember doing a photo shoot kind of at the height of like, forget it. I don't want to save my marriage. I'm going to save this career because it's really taken off now. And I remember the makeup artist who was a friend of mine coming in to do my makeup. And she's like, Brenda, like, I can't, I can't hide this. And she just kind of like did this thing over, you know, with her hand over my face. And I was like, what are you, what what are you talking about? You know, what do you mean? And she was like, I don't know what's wrong and I don't know where you're at, but like, this isn't your face. This isn't the face I've put makeup on for the last 10 years. I don't know who you are right now. And I can't, I can't not change what you look like right now. And those, and I was like, fuck you. What do you know? Finish. I have a photo shoot for this business because, you know, I was going to get new mar- new marketing and new business cards because now I had this other job, by the way. So I had the, the job that was feeding me a little bit of steady money and like real money because, you know, you get paid good money when you're a professional. Um, so I had this little bit of money and I was like, whatever, I'm going to do this. And it's just going to be my little jump start to put me back to where I need to be. But I'm going to run my, my business a little bit better you know, get my husband back and, and I'm going to, everything's be perfect and, and beautiful. And I couldn't use any of those photos because I looked like I was dying. Like oh, wow. at the time I couldn't see it. Yeah. At the time I could not see, even my photographer that did the photos was like, you know, Hey, are you okay? You know, do you need something? You know, whatever. Cause he didn't know what the hell was going on. He just thought I was doing this promotional stuff or promo for uh, marketing pieces. And like this little ebook I was trying to publish and like, all the stuff I was trying to do, by the way, mm-hmm. all the stuff I was trying to do that never actually came to fruition. Like I lost thousands of dollars, in, like a new website. And like I said, this marketing 
material and these, um, this ebook and, you know, this coaching program that I had to like really, you know, put myself out there, blah, blah, blah. All of it was fueled by the money that I was making in the real job, trying to prove to my husband that I can have a real job and not get so crazy focused on this other thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. and I mean, I think that was like the bottom of the barrel. You like, I was starting to relapse. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was starting absolutely. to relapse. And, and, and then I was like, wait, no, I can't, I can't do it. Um, and in the middle of that, I turned into, you know, doing other things like selling oils and selling whatever that, you know, whatever I, I just needed to make money. I needed to make money so I could show that all this, you know, show my husband that it was all worth it. That it was all worth it. And, and because now I have a steady revenue stream, it's going to change. There's a reason they tell us don't quit your day job, but shame often warps that reminder into the refrain, don't quit your daydream. For people like Brenda, that daydream became a waking nightmare, one whose pull acted like quicksand. The more she struggled and fought, the deeper she was dragged, and she was about to get in over her head. But we'll save that thought for our next episode. The Your Body, Your Brand podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Kyla Tova. Dramaturgical feedback was provided by Kendall Lynch. Music for the intro was written and produced by Mackenzie Quattlebaum. Concept photography for the website, social media, and podcast cover art was taken by Reza Scott of RF Scott Imagery. To support this independent, ad-free podcast and help us develop a season two, please consider becoming a patron. Patrons who pledge $3 a month or more will get access to exclusive audio, including cut audio and longer, previously unreleased interviews. This week's Patreon episode is Katie Dalebout. If you want to listen, just visit patreon.com slash bodybrandpod. And thank you so much to each and every one of you who has already become a patron. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on whatever podcast platform you happen to like. I will say that Apple Podcasts is a really great place to subscribe and leave a review because that definitely helps the podcast get found. I just wanted to quickly read a couple of the reviews. This one is from KiwiFruit1212. It's a five-star review that says, Compelling podcast. I'm really enjoying the podcast. It's well-researched, well-produced, and uses compelling documentary-style narration and storytelling to bravely shed light on a complex subject. It is definitely making me more aware of all the subtle and not-so-subtle influences in our society and how they contribute to a culture for women that is alluring and destructive at the same time. I look forward to more episodes. I look forward to putting some more out for you, KiwiFruit1212. This one from JA91973 says, I'm very impressed with the content and the body and mind positive message of the podcast. Kyla has provided quality information on body image, and this continues to be very helpful. Love this podcast. Wish there were more with many exclamation marks. Thank you. And thank you. And I do plan to make more. As I said earlier, to help me make a season two, I do need more patrons. Speaking of which, here's one more review. This is from Eva1951MD. This is an amazing and brilliant podcast. I binged on it yesterday and immediately became a Patreon supporter. Such important observations about women and their biggest dilemma. Their bodies is a reflection of who they choose to be. Consider joining me as a financial supporter and keep more episodes coming. Well, I guess that one says it all. Thank you to each and every one of you who has been leaving reviews, who's subscribed, who has been posting about it on your social media platforms. Every single bit counts. 
And speaking of more podcasts, there is more to this season. If you want to check out the show notes and links to the guests who appeared on today's episode or any other episode, you can go to bodybrandpod.com slash listen. And today's episode is bodybrandpod.com slash listen slash publish. And of course, in the spirit of making a season two, if you are a health coach, a yoga teacher, personal trainer, wellness entrepreneur of any kind, please reach out, even if you've just considered becoming one or if you've left that profession. I'd love to hear your story and potentially share it in season two. So you can send me a text email or better yet, record a voice memo and email it to yourbodyyourbrand at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and I'll see you in episode eight.